Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. going to read from God's Word now, uh, and we're going to read John chapter 20, verse 24 to 31. It's going to be on the screen behind me, or if you've got your Bibles there, you'll feel free to open them up. But we'll pick it up in John chapter 20, verse 24. This is after Jesus had died and been raised back to life. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where, his na- where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, it's a real privilege for me to be here with you this morning. Some faces that I've met before, but many that I haven't. And to open up on, I think, a question that is going to be important for all of us at various stages of our life. Um, What do we do with this reality of doubts? This is sort of a question that underlies many of the other kinds of questions that you'll be asking in this series and the other kinds of questions that we spend a lot of time wrestling with on our YouTube channel. And so what I want to say is that some of the things we may bring up today and may provoke challenges or stories or questions that you're raising. And I just want to let you know, I'm going to stick around after the service. And if there's someone that you'd like to talk to, Barna, a famous research group based over in the US to do a survey when it comes to the question of doubt right around the world. They picked dozens of countries, got a thousand young people from each one and surveyed them. How often do you, as someone who professes to believe in Jesus, experience doubt? And they realized that either in extended periods or for short but powerful periods of doubt, the majority were very, very open with the experience of wandering through these shadow of a doubt. And when pressed, what is it that causes this doubt? Uh, Many of the times, the causes were a little bit more arcane or unknown that they may have experienced. First, they picked pastors. What do you think young people are struggling with? And they picked all the common questions that you might expect. And with some of them, they weren't wrong. Christians behaving badly, science replacing scripture, sexuality being a key question mark. But the majority of young people, rather than being able to put their finger on exactly what was the reason for their doubt, said, you know what, it's more of just a mood. I don't even know what causes my doubt, other than doubt almost seems to be the waters of the post-Christian culture that we swim in. I just am not always sure, persuaded, certain. Often I experience these periods of doubt. 
Now, we have negative connotations often when it comes to doubt within religious communities. Doubt is often seen as the enemy of faith, and yet when you step back into the world of the Scriptures, so many of the major players in the Bible experience not just dark nights of the soul, but sometimes dark weeks and months and years and decades of the soul that cause them to ask some really profound questions. Take the story of Job in the Old Testament perhaps one of the most ancient of the books to be penned. It describes a series of unfortunate events that this relatively good guy, Job, goes through, a guy who's trying to love God and trying to love his neighbor, and yet everything good from his life is ripped from him. And as he begins to grieve, and friends join him in his grief, over time they begin to ask questions. Well, why is this happening to you? They assume something of divine retribution, that he must have done something wrong to get what he's going through. So what did you do to tick God off so badly? And this experience of grief provokes in Job a series of painful questions, and they're not sanitized to be presented in church, but they reflect the same mixture of emotion with which we often, in our darkest moments behind closed doors, have questions for God as well. He asks things like, why didn't I perish at birth? This feeling, maybe it would have been better just not even to be alive. Or he goes even further, where in chapter 6 he said, I loathe my very life, therefore I will speak out of the bitterness of my soul and give full reign to my complaint. It provokes in him a period of doubt. And he is not alone in having questions for God. In Psalm 10.1, King David says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You go to Elijah, and straight after his greatest spiritual victory at Mount Carmel, defeating the prophets of Baal, all of a sudden he runs away scared out into the wilderness and experiences a deep and dark moment of depression, where he ends up in 1 Kings 19 verse 4 saying, I have had enough. Lord, take my very life. He just wants to tap out. The Apostle Paul describes the same thing in 2 Corinthians, where having outlined all of the challenges and opposition that he faced for preaching Jesus in the world, and all of the heartache that comes with Christians falling away and with false prophets sowing discord, and all of the beatings and imprisonment, he says that we despaired even of life itself. How often he wished it would be far better for me to be with Christ. Now, these experiences of doubt are profoundly common in the life of Christians. Whether it's doubts that are provoked by thoughtful questions, maybe by the intelligentsia of our age, and maybe by smart professors or skeptical friends, maybe by a meme that you see on social media, but it's a question that's a challenge to Christianity that you've never considered and you're not sure if there's an answer. Or maybe it's a doubt that's prompted by a painful experience like what Job goes through, where you've been told of the goodness of God your entire life, and then in the midst of darkness and tragedy, and you pray and it feels like your prayers are posted to a non-existent address. And like Jesus on the cross, heaven is dark and heaven is silent, and there is no response forthcoming. Doubts are powerful, and they are present in the life of Christians. And they can be really disorienting if, like for Marty Samson, no one in your spiritual circles is talking about it. 
You may have heard the name Lee Strobel before, an investigative journalist whose wife became a Christian, and that really ticked him off. He didn't like Christians, and so he tried to set about to disprove her belief in Jesus by showing that the resurrection of Jesus is nothing but a farce, and in that process becomes a Christian. He's compelled by the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. No, this really is true and goes on to share his story, to write a book, The Case for Christ, that is sold in best-selling numbers and has been made into a movie. It's really worthwhile seeing his story. But after traveling around churches right throughout the Western world, he made this observation. He said, for many Christians, merely having doubts of any kind can be scary. They wonder if their questions disqualify them from being a follower of Christ. And so in this question, how do I deal with doubt? What I want to do this morning is share three things, three false beliefs that we have that I think, when we review them, can help lead to a much healthier relationship with the role of doubt in developing faith, and ultimately a stronger faith in the God who made Himself known in Jesus. And the first of these three things is that we have a wrong view of faith. What is faith? If you had to give it a definition, how would you define faith? Now, there are enough gray hairs in the room to know exactly where this image comes from. The great Indiana Jones moment, where Harrison Ford has to take a leap of faith in order to arrive at the Holy Grail. He's being pressed, pushed with a gun to the head of the heroine of the movie, and so he needs to make this leap of faith. And for many people in our modern world, that's kind of what they think faith is in the religious sense. It's a blind leap in the dark. In fact, Richard Dawkins, sort of the high priest of new atheism, describes faith as belief in the absence of evidence. You believe something in the absence of evidence. And he goes on to say, this is actually what's wrong with religion. It's what develops this anti-scientific, anti-intellectual approach to how you form your beliefs. But is that faith? Or is that blind faith? You see, in the Bible, the New Testament was written in a language called Koine Greek, kind of a trade ancient language, street version of ancient Greek. And in this language, there were two Greek words that the New Testament authors could have used to describe faith, belief, or trust. The first is the term nemitso, which means to believe on the basis of custom or tradition. You may have grown up in Southside Presbyterian, and so your parents told you what to think, your pastors told you what to think, and nemitso would be to accept their statements uncritically, just to believe something on the basis of tradition. The second term is pistis or pistuo, which means to believe on the basis of the claims uh, and their credibility to begin with. And maybe you've investigated them personally, or you, the person who's telling you, they have the right credentials and character that you really can trust what they say. This is pistuo, to believe on the base of the credibility of the claims. Now, any guess as to which one of these two words the New Testament exclusively uses when it encourages Christian faith? I'll give you a hint. It's not nemitso. It's pistuo. Every single time to believe on the basis of the credibility of the claim itself. In fact, in John's Gospel, our reading this morning, that chapter closes that Jesus did many other things in the presence of His disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these things I have written. What things? 
What's this gospel been devoted to telling us? Out of all the things that Jesus did, what did John spotlight? Well, he spotlighted the major identity claims of Jesus of Nazareth. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. In fact, before Abraham was, I am. He's claiming to be the pre-existent voice of Yahweh, Old Testament God. Now made human flesh. Here I am. That's who he's claiming to be. And then John spells out these seven semeon or signs, these miraculous evidences that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Turning water to wine, not always the favorite amongst Baptists. I don't know how you Presbyterians go. But being able to have power over all the elements, walking on water, calming storms, setting free people from evil powers, the resurrection of a man from the dead, the restoration of sight, ultimately his own resurrection. And this is what John says, these things I have written so that you may believe, pistuo, have faith, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. Notice John doesn't ask you to believe at the beginning of the gospel. In fact, when Nathaniel does believe at the beginning of the gospel in chapter 1, ah, here is Nathaniel, a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. I saw you even while you were under the fig tree. Oh, <gasps> Messiah, what? You believe just because I said I saw you under a tree? you are going to see even greater things than these. Jesus almost pushes back on Nathaniel's willingness to believe so easily before anything has really been established about who he is and what he's about to do. It's only after you've got this eyewitness evidence from the apostles of Jesus' claims and his miracles and his resurrection from the dead, these things I have written so that you may believe. In other words, Belief comes, Christian faith comes, not as a blind leap in the dark, but as a following of the evidence into the light. Christian faith is a response to the revelation of God, that He is real and you can trust Him. Now, you might jump to Corinthians and say, but Dan, aren't we told that we walk by faith and not by sight? How does this fit in with your definition that faith is a response to the revelation of God rather than Kind of the evidence for it. How is this not believing in the absence of evidence? Well, I'll give you a brilliant example. The day that I stood up at the altar to make vows to my wife, Erin, I had no idea what the future would involve for us. Of the joys, of the hardships, the challenges that we would face together. Did I know, because of foreknowledge, exactly what's going to play out? And is that why I chose to put my faith in her? No. I wasn't walking by sight, but is my faith in her a blind faith, or is it a faith based on what I already know about what she's been like in the past, her character, her commitment, her fidelity? My act of putting my future in her hands is not a blind faith, it's a faith based on who I already know her to be. And the same is true of the God of Scripture. We don't know the future. We walk by faith, not by sight. But what is the faith in? It's a faith in the God who has made himself known all throughout redemption history. It's the voice. 
that has been faithful to fulfill his promises again and again and again, so that even when I can't see it in the doubt and the struggle and the pain that I'm going through, faith is a response in who I know God to be until ultimately all is brought to light. And I can see how that plays out. We walk by faith and not by sight. And so a right view of Christian faith helps us realize then what role that doubt can play in our life. That believing in God isn't just about pushing out the questions and the doubts and just trying to conjure up some religious feeling. It's about trusting the one who has made himself known. Which leads then to a wrong view of doubt. Many of us think that doubt is the opposite or the enemy of faith. And maybe we've got some good reasons in the way that that's played out in people's lives in the past. But I want to suggest that the God of the Bible has far more comfort with doubt and with doubters than do modern Christians. We're familiar with the Doubting Thomas episode that we read here this morning, and we'll get to that soon, but one of the other Gospels after the resurrection of Jesus also records the disciples doubting. But it's one that Christians are very rarely honed in on. You may be familiar with what's called the Great Commission of Jesus from Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus says to his disciples who came to him in Galilee, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, in your going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you and I'll be with you to the very ends of the age. But what we often skip over when missionaries preach that story in church, is the verse that precedes it. The eleven disciples go to Galilee to see Jesus again. And when they saw him, they worshipped, good, but some doubted. Huh? Who was it that Jesus commissioned to go and turn the world upside down with the gospel? A small band of worshippers and doubters. Jesus didn't take away their doubts in this moment. Jesus doesn't say, well, before I send you out, I'm just going to have to work on this impulse within you that's struggling to believe that all that's happening right now. No, he sends them anyway. As we shared this morning from that small little survey, the biggest questions, the most raw emotive anger that's expressed towards God at different points is found on the lips of nearly every one of the major characters of moments of doubt and depression and disillusionment. And yet these are the people that God has worked through to be prophets and apostles and pastors and teachers and evangelists to go and turn the world upside down with the good news of the Christian story. So what does this mean when it comes to the nature of doubt? Maybe doubt isn't always the enemy of faith. Maybe doubt can actually become a doorway to a deeper faith. Let me share an example that comes from outside of Scripture. Um, Back in 1991, there was a fantastic experiment that was done to explore whether or not we can colonize space. It was set up by a crack team of scientists cooperating from a couple of universities, and they set this up over in the deserts in Arizona, what they call these biospheres. There was a really bad Paulie Shaw movie back in the 90s called Biodome. Uh, Don't watch it. You're probably not going to be good for your soul. Uh, But the whole point was to build these artificial terrariums that mimicked the conditions of a different ecosystem from around our planet. 
There were places like the savannah deserts or uh, rainforest sections or Australian outback where they're trying to set up all of the different atmospheric conditions, cut it off as a terrarium from the outside world and see whether or not they can replicate it so that we could colonize Mars or the moon in the future with these successfully. Lock themselves in for two years, what happens? Well, one of the observations that they made, and you can go and read about this online, is that many of the tree species that they planted in these terrariums did not grow up to be the same size as what they would outside the biospheres. In fact, as they were growing up, some of them just began to uproot and fall over well, well before they'd finished growing. And it was in this process that they realized there was one really important atmospheric condition that they forgot to mimic, namely wind. Because what wind does is these small little saplings are normally growing up in the outside world is as it pushes against the little tree, two things happen. That movement actually causes it to draw up water and nutrients from the soil in order to strengthen its upper parts. And it also damagingly breaks small fibers, the same way that our muscles tear when we do big workouts at the gym, in order that those fibers grow back stronger than they would if they'd never faced that resistance in the first place. It's being challenged by this outside force that actually causes it to grow. And I think Christian faith functions in a very similar way when it comes to its relationship to doubt. Doubts can be a doorway to a deeper faith if we know rather than pushing them down and pretending that we don't have them, we learn to be able to attend to our doubts in the right and proper way. In fact, to switch metaphors for a moment, the late Tim Keller, I'm sure dearly beloved here in this church, in his own book, The Reason for God, where he explores the role of doubt, says that a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. In other words, you need to constantly be exposing yourself to doubts in order to develop the right kind of way of dealing with greater ones in the future, to be able to fight off the danger that it can be to your faith. Now, I think Jesus asks a really important question in the Scriptures, often to His disciples, that we need to hear about rightly diagnosing our doubts. Why did you doubt? Because in truth, there are different kinds of doubts. And in the same way that different conditions are treated in a different way by doctors, so too the great physician of our souls invites us to deal with doubts differently depending on its diagnosis. Perhaps the first might be the concept of a doubt of the will. And this is where people refuse to believe something. They doubt that something is true because they do not want it to be true. Romans 1 speaks about suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They know it, but they suppress it. They don't want to accept that outcome. Or in John chapter 5, as Jesus is speaking with some of the Jewish leaders, he says, you search the Scriptures because you think by them you have eternal life, but these point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So often we can think that we are open-hearted in our search, and yet for one reason or another, perhaps as a way to enable us to do what we want to do, rather than feel constrained by the right thing to do, or maybe we don't want to have any kind of influence over accountability at the end of our lives, 
we can get rid of the God stuff simply by using a few skeptical doubts to justify our disbelief. In a very telling uh, passage in Aldous Huxley's book, Ends and Means, this is a famed atheist of the 20th century, he writes that this embrace by him and many others in the early 1920s and early 1930s of the philosophy of meaninglessness, capital M, i.e. no God, nihilism, the God is dead stuff. The driving motivation for him was the desire to not be told to do what he wanted to do in the bedroom. And then he said, and in light of this desire, I found it not difficult at all to find justifying reasons for my skepticism. In other ways, as a motivated reasoner, I don't want it to be true, so let me find some reasons to throw up as a skeptical shield so that I never have to pretend as though the God stuff is real. Sometimes that's there. Now, we need to be very careful in diagnosing these sorts of barriers in our own heart, as well as especially in others. But there are these times where then Jesus asks challenging questions, like with the rich young ruler. Keep the commandments? Yep, I've kept them since my youth. Then one thing you lack if you would be perfect. Go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. It says the man walks away sad because... He was very wealthy. It wasn't sad because he was wealthy. He was sad because his money had him. His money was the thing that for him, he was holding on to more than his willingness to receive God. And Jesus uses questions and helping to diagnose what is it that's holding you back here? And one of the questions I often use gently in conversation is, hey, if there was an answer to that question, if I could show you that Christianity really is true, would you want to follow Jesus? Or is this not what's at the core of your rejection? The second kind, and this is a radically different kind of doubt, are doubts of the mind. And here, Scripture offers a then a hugely different remedy, which is investigation. Come and see. Because doubts of the mind are often brought on by questions, uh, explanations around how the Christian story fits together that you don't quite understand. Is it logical to believe all of these things? Is it based on an evaluation of evidence? Or am I just special pleading and growing up in one religious tradition rather than either secular or other religious stories? And what the Bible invites here is to reflect upon all of the inspired apologetics that pack out its pages. You might be new to the idea that Christian faith is a response to God's revelation, but the Bible is full of ways that God has made himself known. There are some two dozen or so formal arguments in philosophy of religion that are marshaled to support the existence of God and the truth of Christianity. And these are hashed out in all of the literature by professors, philosophers, scientists, theologians, dating back thousands of years now, some of these arguments. And they're all based on the kind of revelation that Scripture promises. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. What it's claiming there is that nature speaks. Nature reveals the reality of God. The Apostle Paul says the same in Romans 1.20, for since the creation of this world, God's invisible qualities, His divine power and might have been clearly seen, being evidenced by what has been made. So that people are without excuse. In other words, if you want to know whether Christianity is true, whether God's real, well, study nature, study creation. Whether through a telescope or a microscope, there are signs that the world that we inhabit is created by an intelligent, 
mind. There are signs in us. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says that human beings are made in God's image, that all of us bear the reality of God's existence in our own lived experience, that we are thinking beings, rational creatures, able to make sense of the universe, to follow logic and evidence through to warranted conclusions, to be free, to be conscious, that we are moral creatures, people who tap into the reality of good and evil, a reality that does not exist, likely, outside of an objective creator, but one that all of our conscience testifies to. That we are relational creatures, longing to love and be loved because we're made in the image of the headwaters of love itself, the triune God. That we are spiritual creatures, unsatisfied with anything we can find in this world, always chasing for something more. Why? Because like the great teacher in Ecclesiastes, we recognize anything under the sun, it just doesn't satiate the desire for which we were made. God has set eternity in the hearts of humanity. And so human beings in our lived experience points towards God. So too does history. God hasn't just created and then stood back. He has made himself known in redemptive history, whispering through prophets, whispering through the big sovereign movements of nations, but ultimately incarnating, making himself known in his son, Jesus. God, like the author, has written himself into the story. God has left a footprint of himself in our recorded human history. Jesus reveals to us who God is. And the Holy Spirit testifies to this internal witness of the reality of God. It's by his spirit that we can cry out, Abba, Father. His spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And his leading, his drawing, his personal revelation to anyone from John the baptizer in the womb of Elizabeth who leaps with joy at the presence of Jesus all the way through to those who are in their last moments trapped in a coma. As a personal God, he draws near and makes himself known to everyone who would respond. And so this is the whole realm then of apologetics. If you've never heard this word, it's unfortunate. It sounds like we go around saying sorry for being a Christian. And certainly Christians should say sorry for a lot of things in our own history. But now apologetics comes from another Greek New Testament word, apologia, which means to give a defense or to make your case, to give an answer for the reason that the hope that you have. And it's this art of commending and defending the gospel like Jesus. And so I want to invite you, if you have intellectual doubts that are hidden behind the surface, that you haven't voiced towards others, and you're kind of afraid of, if I bring these up, is the whole Christian edifice going to fall down? Is Christianity not true? Hey, if it's true, then it invites questioning. You shouldn't be afraid of what you'll unearth. And you're invited to investigate, to see the responses that Christian thinkers have left for a couple of thousand years, which is, again, why our whole YouTube channel exists. Hundreds of videos now helping you wrestle with pretty much every question you've probably thought of before, or the questions you hope no one asks you. Which leads to the whole Doubting Thomas episode. Because this is where Jesus is beginning to challenge him. And often we interpret this wrong. Skeptics certainly do, but many Christians do as well. It's at the end of John's gospel where this story appears, and the rough interpretation is, well, we should be willing to believe without evidence, because Jesus showed up, the scars, he believes, he confesses, and Jesus says, well, that's good, but blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe. And the interpretation you often hear heard then is, see, Christian faith is all about believing in the absence of evidence. That's not what's happening in this episode. 
The whole of John's gospel is designed to say that we should believe on the basis of the credible testimony of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's the pattern of all of the gospels. It's the pattern of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, was buried, raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared. And he lists a litany of witnesses that you can track down to check it out with at the time that letter was written. Eyewitness testimony. You and I today have to believe in Jesus, his death and resurrection. How? On the basis of the eyewitness testimony the credible testimony of the men and women who saw him die, buried, empty tomb, risen. What was Thomas unwilling to believe on the basis of? You see, the earlier in that chapter, Jesus appears on the night of his resurrection, but Thomas is out, must maybe getting unleavened pizza or something like that for everyone else. Only 10 of the remaining 11 disciples are there in the locked room. Jesus eats with them. He shows himself to them. I'm not a ghost. Touch me, feel me, hug me. He convinces them that he's risen from the dead. Then he leaves. Thomas comes back with the unleavened pizza, and they say, you'll never guess what happened. Mary was telling the truth. The women from Matthew's gospel who saw Jesus when they were running, they're telling the truth. Peter, who saw Jesus that day risen, he's telling the truth. Cleopas and the unnamed disciple from the Emmaus Road who saw Jesus that day, they're telling the truth. We saw him too, Thomas. We ate with him. We hugged him. We touched the scars. He is alive from the dead. Was Thomas willing to receive the eyewitness testimony of his friends and followers? No. He demanded that he too would see Jesus. Now, Jesus acquiesced to his request in this situation. Why? Because Thomas was determined to serve as an eyewitness, an apostle to the resurrection of Jesus, and so it had to play out this way. But Jesus rebukes him for being unwilling to receive the kind of evidence that would be the basis of your belief and mine. These things are written so that you may believe. It's not the problem of evidence. It's a problem of Thomas demanding more evidence than should be required, an unwillingness for him to believe. And so, in response to intellectual doubts, investigation. Dig, explore the facts, ask the questions, see what responses the Christian story has to bear. What does philosophy and science and history say? How does Scripture give us the resources to make sense of these questions? And you, I'm sure, will be surprised at the riches that have been dug from these spiritual wells over the last 2,000 years. We're spending 20 years now investigating the truth of the Christian story, comparing it with others. My faith now is far stronger, having been challenged by doubts along the way, and in response, investigating. And do I have new questions? Yes. But is my conviction in the reality of God, that God made known in Jesus, his death and resurrection, has that grown? Absolutely. And not by blind faith, but the biblical faith, faith of looking, of seeing, of investigating, of touching, of tasting, and say, this really is worth believing. Which leads to the third kind of doubt. Whenever people raise questions, and I do live Q&As, maybe a hundred or so a year, whenever I do those, every question I'm asked falls into one of two buckets. People are either under the surface, when they ask questions about science and the origins of the universe, when they ask questions about, has the Bible been tampered with and changed over time? When they ask questions about, how do I know that God isn't just a figment of my imagination? What they're asking is, is it true? The first bucket, am I intellectually able to believe this? 
as a responsible step? Is it true? But the second set of questions, and by far the more difficult to deal with, concern the doubt that was prompted in the garden in Genesis 3. Not is it true, but is God good? Can I really trust God at His word? Can I really trust that He has my best intentions at heart? Can I really believe that He loves me and that He's not just holding back or absent? How do I know that God really is good? And so when someone asks me, why does a good God allow suffering like you'll have next week? Why doesn't God answer my prayers in the way that I think He should? Why haven't I felt God in years, maybe decades, the way that I did when I was young? Why has my life played out full of tragedy and disaster? What they're really asking is, is God really good? Not is He real, but can I trust Him? Like standing at the altar, can I keep believing that He's going to be faithful to the promises of Scripture? And in the presence of these kind of doubts, this is where Scripture is most soft. In fact, I love this verse from Jesus' half-brother Jude. Be merciful to those who doubt. When people are going through hardships and they're maybe struggling to believe in God, the response isn't a hard-handed, who are you to question God? Shall what is made say to its maker, why have you made me this way? Is that the helpful response to someone who's hurting and struggling to know whether the character of God is someone that they can trust? Because for Job, it was only after a revelation of what God is like. Seeing who God is, His bigness and His beauty, that He was humbled to realize. I spoke about things which I did not understand. And what God's response is to these questions, to the heart cry questions for us, wasn't simply to send an answer or an apologist. It wasn't to send another book of the Bible. It was to wrap up that response to our why questions, not in a message, but in a person. The Word became flesh to dwell amongst us. And what you'll notice, I think, ultimately in the Christian story is that Jesus is God's answer to our every heart cry. And rarely does it come as some kind of logical syllogism. Premise, premise, conclusion. Therefore, stop doubting. Stop struggling. Stop feeling let down. Stop pretending to be hurt and just believe and accept it. No. It's in the form of redemptive encounters that people who have all of these experiences have with Jesus of Nazareth. And it's in the form of these stories that as we read them, we recognize the goodness of God. And that these stories minister to us in more powerful ways than simple answers ever could. I'm part of a family who's experienced a lot of tragedy over the years. Why? I could not tell you. I could give you big answers as to why God may let some bad things happen. The meta reasons, but... Why does God let the specifics play out? I don't have a clue. Where do we draw strength and hope? What gives me faith in the shadow of a doubt? Well, it's, it's Jesus hanging on a cross. You see, I may not know the reason why God lets a ton of things happen in the world, but I know that we're loved. I know that the dark moments are not evidence of His absence because... His presence has been shown on the cross. 
Think about a moment like that where all of heaven has gone silent. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's like creation is bruised in the colors that take over the sky. And yet, even amidst the silence, what does Scripture tell us? That God was in Christ reconciling a lost world to himself. And the greatest moment of darkness and divine silence ends up being the doorway to salvation for whoever would believe. And if that's true of this moment in history, having the benefit of hindsight to look back, then what could that mean for our unanswered prayers? What could that mean for our experience of darkness and tragedy and death? What looks like a defeat with God in his end game is reversed. And so Jesus is God's answer to our every heart cry. And the way that I respond then to these kinds of deep doubts is to walk alongside people like him, Emmanuel. The answer was God with us. It's the best thing Job's friends did. The seven days there in the dirt, no one said anything. It's only when they opened their mouth to come up with an answer that they ended up putting both feet in. It's to be with people. It's to show them the love of Christ. It's to offer them him as God's answer, as a satisfying reason as to what to do with our doubts. Because as an apologist, let me say this, we don't have a watertight argument. We have a watertight person. And it's in Jesus, this window into heaven. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. That that question, what is God like, is ultimately answered. And so if you're here this morning and you've got doubts of various kinds, maybe a doubt of the will, I don't want to believe in Christianity because it has all of these rules, well, let's explore that. What would it really mean if it's true? Would it be good news to you? Maybe it's a doubt of the mind, an intellectual challenge with Christianity, well, come and talk to someone. There are libraries full of resources wrestling with these questions. You may find really helpful answers that will allow you to take your next steps in faith and to grow stronger so that you can provide the answers and help towards others. Or is it one of these wounds that you carry? Because I think one of the most profound symbols in all of Scripture comes in the next part. Again, John chapter 20 where Jesus, in commissioning the disciples, appears amongst them, says, Peace be with you. And showing them the scar prints in his hands and in his feet, he says, As the Father has sent me, so now I sent you. That it's experiencing the love and the healing of the gospel in the midst of our wounds, that those scars then are not things that we hide or pretend aren't there, but they become the very sending symbol of Jesus' church. That just like Jesus, we minister as wounded healers, showing how God meets us in our need to give us the promise and the hope that can animate all the rest of life. I invite you to bow your heads with me. I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you love us, you know us, that not one thought or feeling in our hearts is hidden from you, and yet, Lord, so many of our needs are diverse. And I pray that as one message has gone out, that by your Spirit, hundreds of different applications will happen to the heart of every person here. Would you make questioning minds curious to dive into the wells of Scripture and the wisdom of your people over the centuries in search of meaningful answers? Well, for those whose hearts are hard right now and think that following you would be a death knell to their humanity, Lord, would you soften them with the truth of who you are that your yoke is easy and your burden is light, and that as a heavenly Father, your purpose for us is not to take life, but to give it in life in abundance. 
And Lord, for those who are hurting, who are wounded, of unanswered prayers, of unfulfilled longings, of tragedy, and of dark seasons of the soul. Lord, I pray that in your timing and for your purposes, you would draw near. Just like the dawn of Easter Sunday brought an end to the shadowy Sabbath of Holy Saturday. Lord, would would that dawn come in their lives as they look to and experience Jesus? In whose name we pray. Amen.